This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. The more things change, the more they stay the same. We noticed that in the last episode of the Best Song Podcast, when the Oscar-winning song Flashdance, What a Feeling, harkened back to the first Oscar-winning song, The Continental, with both praising the effects of dancing. And the traditional love song will always be a part of the list of Oscar nominees, as it was in the first year with Love and Bloom, and continues in this 51st year of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. For the second consecutive year, we have a film earning two nominations in this category, which begs the question, what is it about the 1980s that is suddenly causing the Academy to honor two songs from a film three times in the past five years and zero times in the first 46 years? Perhaps the elimination of the preliminary ballot allowed two songs from one movie to get nominated, but we'll never really know the answer to this question because we'd have to get into the minds of every Oscar voter. But this trend is not going away, for better or for worse. Thankfully, the Academy doesn't seem to feel that multiple song nominations for one film creates an unfair advantage. It never really did in the acting categories, where more than one actor from a film has been nominated in the same category many times. There's another reason why the list of nominated songs from 1984 stands out in the historical record. It's the first time, and as of 2023, the only time that all the nominated songs spent at least one week at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And there were more number one hit movie songs that didn't make the nominations list, as we will discover shortly. Before 1984, the most number one songs that had been nominated in one year was two. So with that piece of history known, let's start with the film that received those two song nominations. It's Footloose, which was a sensational hit when it came out in February 1984. Like Flashdance, the movie builds up to an exciting conclusion where the desire to dance is officially unleashed and not done in secret warehouses or across the river. But none of the characters in Footloose dream of being professional dancers. They just want to dance to let out their emotions. The script for Footloose was written by Oscar-winning lyricist Dean Pitchford, who had thought about the idea around the same time he was working on the songs for 1980s fame. And I've invited Dean Pitchford back to the Best Song Podcast to talk about getting Footloose onto the big screen. Dean Pitchford, it's so good having you back on the show. How are you doing today? I'm good, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me back. Oh, absolutely. Because... I, I'm so excited. We're going to cut loose and talk about Footloose here. Uh, looking back on it now, it seems like one of those movie ideas that seemed like a shoe-in to get made. Was it easy to get the studios convinced to, to make Footloose? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, first of all, there was no MTV yet. And so music was something that belonged to the 40s and the 50s at MGM. But it wasn't being done so much in the 80s. And when we did Fame... You know, fame was excused by the the music in fame was excused by the fact that there was a high school for performing arts. And so they would sing and they would dance in their classes. 
um, what I was proposing was a, a movie in which the music was a character played in the background, but there was a, uh, a story being told in the forefront. And after the, we, Michael and I won the Academy Award for Fame, I was suddenly being courted by a lot of studios and they were saying, what's your next idea? What are you going to do next? And I had read this story. I, I kept having these meetings in which they would say, you know what, you want to get a soundtrack out of this? What you got to do is tell the story of a boy or a girl in New York, Nashville, or Los Angeles. And they want to be a Broadway singer, a country singer, or a pop singer. And it chronicles their recording of their new album or their new show. And there's your soundtrack right there. And after every one of those meetings, I can't tell you how many of those I had, I left there thinking, that's not my idea of a musical because my idea of a musical is finding music in unexpected places where the music is uh, a kind of a surprise. <clears throat> and while I was using that as the mandate to myself, I read a story in the San Francisco Chronicle on a weekend visit up there, a little tiny story about a town in Oklahoma that had just lifted an 88 year ban on dancing and the, the graduating class of that high school was having its first prom in 88 years. And the entire senior class, all 14 students, were going to attend. And I thought, well, there's some place where you would not expect to hear music. Maybe there's something there. So I, I very quickly wrote a first draft of, 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 of an idea that I had. I attracted the attention of a producer named Dan Melnick. And he paid to fly me to Oklahoma. And I went to Oklahoma. I went to the town where this happened called Elmore City, Oklahoma. And I spent mm, the better part of a week there sitting in the classrooms and hanging out with the kids after school. By this time, I was 29 years old. And so I wasn't that far out of high school myself. And um, I was going to prayer meetings. And I went and I talked to people up and down Main Street. And I came back and I began in earnest to really work on the movie, which at the time was called Cheek to Cheek. I called it Cheek to Cheek because I didn't know what I, my title was going to be, but I wanted to title it something that was so poisonous that nobody would want to continue with that title. It was going to be easy <laughs> to replace that title. And so it was Cheek to Cheek through a lot of its development, um, but we developed it at 20th Century Fox. And then there was a the studio was taken over by a man named Marvin Davis and he and Dan Melnick were like oil and water. They were at each other's throats from the beginning. So Marvin Davis sent Dan and his projects packing and we ended up at Paramount and we got to Paramount and there was one man in charge, Don Simpson, and he left to become the producer of Flashdance he was replaced by Michael Eisner and Jeff Katzenberg and Don Steele. So we are on to our second studio. We're on to our second batch of executives at that studio. And every time this is happening, uh, I'm doing rewrites. All of them have notes for me. So I'm rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And then we hire Herbert Ross to be the director and Herbert and I go together, get together and do a, a bunch of, I do a bunch of rewrites for Herbert. And then the studio won't make his deal because Herbert Ross is a very, very decorated Hollywood veteran who had directed many, many big hit Neil Simon movies. He had done Funny Lady. He had done Funny Girl choreography. 
Um, and he had a price. And Paramount was thinking of Footloose as a real cheapie. It was going to be a low budget, something for the kids. And they didn't want to pay Herbert Ross's price. So he left the project. And then Dan Melnick had the idea that what he wanted to do was to rehabilitate the career of a man who had fallen into disfavor, a man named Michael Cimino, who had directed a movie called Heaven's Gate and had single-handedly bankrupted the studio United Artists. So Dan Melnick said, this will be his redemption and all of Hollywood will sit up and take notice because we're making a movie with disgraced director Michael Cimino. And Michael came in and he immediately began giving me notes and the notes were inflating the price of the movie to the point that the people at Paramount got very cold feet and they realized that this is how United Artists got into trouble by hiring a director who kept on pumping up the budget. So they let him go and then they bit the bullet and they brought Herbert Ross back again. So I'm rewriting all this time for all of these different executives and directors and studios. And at the in the end of the day, I rewrote Footloose 22 times. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so it was not a slam dunk. It was not something where people went, you know. And the thing that I had to encounter at the very beginning and still did as I was writing is they were saying, people were saying to me, you know, I when does it take place? And I said, now. And they said, see, I, I would buy this if it was taking place in 1959 and there was a, a, a law against dancing. But now, you know, this is 1980, 81, 82, 83. Now I don't quite buy it. And I said, well, here's the thing. If it took place in 1959, the interdiction against dancing would not be remarkable. The fact that it's happening now is what makes it, uh, you, you sit up and take notice. And so uh, the producers of Footloose had the idea to hire a student at UCLA to do some research and find out how many communities and colleges and uh, uh, towns in America had laws against dancing in 1982. And he stopped counting at 100. Oh, one. Wow. More than yeah, 100. More than 100. And so that was the consolation that we had that we're, we're not barking up the wrong tree. So we went ahead, we made the movie, and uh, as we were making the movie, the great thing that was happening was that MTV was coming online. And it had started really in 1981, I believe, but it was in just a few markets. And, you know, as time went on, you might remember in the early days of MTV, they, they would do commercials on MTV in which they would tell the viewers to tell your cable company I want my MTV because they wanted to get more and more stations online. Well, that was revving up and revving up and Flashdance took great advantage of that. But by the time Footloose came along, MTV was everywhere in the United States. And we were really beneficiaries of this revolution in music. And uh, that's what happened. We blew up on MTV. So obviously when MTV started to become a thing, I would imagine even sold your point that you wanted to have those songs in there. Because I would imagine they probably even didn't want songs in the movie. No, it was very, they they couldn't understand this, this synergy that I was suggesting where the songs were actually in in the heads or the, 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 the subtexts 
of the actors. So when I went after Kenny Loggins to do the title song, it was because Kenny Loggins had always in my head, he sounded very young. He always sounded boyish and enthusiastic and upbeat. And I thought he would be the voice of Ren, the character eventually played by Kevin Bacon. And when we went after Bonnie Tyler to sing Holding Out for a Hero, she was voicing the thoughts of the, the minister's daughter, Ariel. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. And so I was in the unique position of being able to write lyrics that spoke to the characters while I was writing the script that delivered them the real lines. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I guess that's really the only way to work it out in, instead of writing the script and then hoping you can find songs that fit it later. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, too, the thing that was that worked the most in our favor was that at that point, because MTV was not really going to hit big until the debut of the movie in 1984, while we were pre-producing uh, in the pre-production phases and the making of the movie in 1983, music was still not on the radar of most executives in Hollywood. And the people at Paramount, they were making Star Trek movies. They were making Indiana Jones movies. They were making big budget movies. And we were a deliberately low budget movie that was relegated to a double wide trailer parked at one end of the parking lot at Paramount. That was at what they thought of us. And consequently, they didn't mess with us. I was able to get the writers that I wanted, the co-writers I wanted, the artists that we wanted, the producers. I was able to run around and, and stick my nose into all the studios in town where we were recording. And never did an executive want to hear a rough mix. Nobody wanted to nose in on the process. And so we were less, left blissfully alone. Um, but that also indicated the level of their understanding of what it is we were doing or the level of their interest in what we were doing. Well, all that non-interference paid off for everybody involved. It <laughs> Very did. big hit. It did, yes. The title song is the first Oscar-nominated song we'll hear on this episode. It's heard three times in the movie. At the beginning, during the opening credits, with shots of dancing feet and various types of shoes. Near the middle, in a shortened version, when the kids go to another town to dance at a nightclub. And at the end of the film, during the senior dance. I've always thought that Footloose was a close relative to not only Flashdance, What a Feeling, but also to 9 to 5, which lost the Oscar for original song to Pitchford's fame three years earlier. Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 referred to the stress of working for little money and no reward. The lyrics to Footloose begin with the singer finally ending a hard day's work where time is holding me down. The answer to being held down by a thankless job, according to the song, is to cut loose and dance. Four people are named in the song, Jack, Louise, Milo, and Marie, in an attempt to create some catchy rhymes. And there's no way you can sing the song or just listen to it without tapping your feet even a little bit, thanks to the driving percussion and Kenny Loggins's enthusiastic recording.
Before working on this song and one other for Footloose, Kenny Loggins already got his feet wet in the film soundtrack business with the song I'm Alright from the 1980 comedy Caddyshack. The song didn't get nominated for an Oscar, but it was a hit and has become one of his most requested songs. Being a part of Footloose only cemented the title of king of the movie soundtracks for Kenny Loggins in the 1980s. So you said that you were writing the script and kind of thinking of lyrics for the songs at the same time. So unlike what you did with Fame, where they were dancing and uh, dancing to Donna Summer songs, were the cast members able to dance to the actual songs that we hear in the movie? No, no. The the songs, for the most part, until we got the green light, at which point everything went into hyperdrive. Until we got the green light, no funds were released for paying my collaborators. As a matter of fact, Kenny was along on faith for the first part of our process. He read the script. He said, I like the script. Let me know what happens with it. I'll keep talking to you. But I couldn't go out and hire Eric Carmen and Sammy Hagar and the other collaborators that I had until money was released. And so... Uh, the fact is that that Kenny, there was a very delicate dance I had to do with Kenny because he wanted to do the movie. Paramount said, oh, Kenny Loggins, we'd love to know that he's on board. Can you bring us proof that he is, it's going to work out? We'd like to hear what kind of idea he is bringing to the mix. And so Kenny and I knew that we wanted to give something to the, the studio and then lock down his, we had to lock his deal. Uh, except that Kenny and I were thinking very casually about getting together and doing some work before he left on a tour that was going to take him to Asia for a month. And it was going to be while we were beginning filming. So we needed to break the back of the song, as we say in the business. We needed to break the back of the song before he left for Asia. But 
about four weeks before he was to go to Asia, during which time we were supposed to get together, he walked in the dark. He walked off a stage that he was performing on in Utah, fell off the stage onto his packing crates and broke three ribs. So now Kenny is uh, he's canceled parts of his his tour. He's taped up and he is not in any condition to start writing. Uh, then we keep on saying to him and his manager, we got to show Paramount something. Finally, I get a call from his manager and he says, Kenny is going to try to get himself back in shape by playing a weekend gig at Harris Hotel in Reno. If you can get yourself to Harris, I can get you in a room with Kenny and you guys can start to work on this song. So I flew to Harris. I flew to Reno. Uh, I arrived with a strep throat. I was sick as a dog. I could not let Kenny Loggins know that I was sick as a dog because he needed to sing every night. And I couldn't let him get, spook him that he was walking into a room with somebody who was infectious. So I hit it as best I could. He would show up in the morning with his guitar in my hotel room. We were staying in the same hotel. And he would ease himself down into a chair because he was in such pain. He still had his ribs taped up. And in this, this, this house of pain, the two of us worked on the the first verse, the verses and the choruses. I had some verse ideas and some chorus ideas. We wrote the, the been working so hard all the way through tonight. I got to cut loose foot loose, kick off your Sunday shoes. We wrote all of that. And we, we finished our work in two days, knowing that we had the, the basic uh, shape of the song, but we still felt that we needed to put a bridge on the song. But Kenny had to go to Asia. And so what we did do was we recorded the verse and the choruses. And that's what I was able to show Paramount. And they were sufficiently pleased to say, let's go ahead. Let's make the deal. You got Kenny Loggins on board. But what we had recorded on a cassette player was not sufficient for playback on a movie set. And so I had to call Kenny and say, look, we need to use a dummy, another song that is going to be in the vein of how you hear this song recorded, because we need to get people's bodies moving in a way that will fit with the song Footloose when you eventually realize it's in the, in the studio. So he said, you know what I think is a model is Johnny Be Good. And so use Johnny Be Good as the, the model for the song. Um, which was all fine and good, except that the original recording of Johnny Be Good was done in uh, 1950-something or 60-something. And it was done in a recording studio without a click, meaning that the, the drummer kind of came and went on the beat. And it, it was rather, uh, it was close enough for rock and roll, as we say. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't exactly as strict as it needed to be for filming purposes. So the music supervisors on Footloose had to take the original recording of Johnny Be Good, transfer it to two-track tape, which is thin, and then they had to, in some places, cut it and insert a slight piece of tape to make the beat land exactly, or in other places, they had to cut the tape and slice out 
a razor thin piece of tape, then put the tape back together again so that the beats would all be metronomic in time to uh, like there was a click going. And it was that very delicate surgery that was then transferred to multiple versions of two-track tape. And that was what was sent to Utah and used for playback for all the numbers that were going to be danced to with uh, for Footloose, like the finale and the opening number. That yeah, seems was, like, a, you know, I'm not saying that's too much work, but my goodness, that's a lot of work just to make sure that, you know, what they hear turns out exactly where you, where you want it to be i mean it was extraordinary it, it, enormous, work enormous and then when kenny got back from utah from uh, asia he called and he said we got to finish this song let's finish this song and so i went over to his house with his wife and his kids one evening when he said we'll be able to work and i got there in time to sit down and have we, we fed the kids and then it was bath time for the kids and then it was bedtime for the kids and then before we got down to writing, Kenny said, oh, you know what? You know what? I want to watch. Tonight is the last episode of MASH. The huh. series is coming to an end. It's going to be an historic broadcast. Sit down and let's watch the last episode of, of MASH. So we did. And by this time, the kids are in bed. Eva has gone to bed. There's an enormous storm raging outside, an enormous rainstorm, thunder and lightning. And we can't work in the main part of the house because the kids are asleep. So Kenny takes his guitar and we go down a long hallway into a laundry room. We close the door. I sit on the floor and Kenny sits on the dryer. And together in that space, we wrote the first, we got to turn you around and put your feet on the ground. We recorded that. We wrote all the lyrics and put the, then I said, put the whole song together. So let's do been working so hard tonight. I got to got loose foot loose. First, we got to turn you. We recorded the whole thing together and we had a song. We had the whole number and it was just it's so exciting. I was over the moon about it. And the people at Paramount were equally over the moon about it with the, the demo that I was able to bring in and show them. But the complications did not stop there. We went into the studio to cut the track. And, you know, in those days, the, the industry standard was a 24 track tape. You had this very wide, like four inch wide magnetic tape that contained 24 tracks, which meant that you had the ability to track guitars, pianos, vocals all separately. And then eventually you would mix them. Sometimes when things got very complicated and you needed more than 24 tracks, you could electronically hook up a second machine. You could put them in sync and you could get 48 tracks. But even that wasn't enough for Kenny. Eventually, Kenny hooked up four machines in tandem. And we recorded, Footloose originally was recorded on 96 tracks. And what that means is that 96 tracks then have to be reduced to 48 tracks, down to 24 tracks. The 24 tracks have to go down to 12, then down to six, and then down to two, because you're going to mix it in stereo. And but those 94 tracks meant that we had all these possibilities. And, you know, nowadays when you can do it on a computer and you don't have to worry about using up disk space, you can have hundreds of tracks, many different vocals, many different guitar licks. Uh, in those days, the only way to get that kind of those kind of options was to 
duplicate the number of machines that you had hooked up. So we did 96 tracks. Uh, I think we probably recorded the song. You know, some of the songs we recorded for Footloose, we did in three or four days. I think with Footloose, we spent three weeks. That's amazing. How how often, how rare is that? Is it rare at all to Very. use it's, that it, main track? It not only is it incredibly rare, it's incredibly expensive. Sure. And uh, we were all given, a, every track was given a budget. And uh, anything above and beyond was eaten up by the songwriters. And so when we went over budget there, uh, Paramount gingerly came in for some of it, but then there were other checks that had to be written. Wow. So, okay. It was recorded on 90, 96 tracks. You sang the first part of it in Kenny Loggins's laundry room, which just, just floors me. I just love that. That's but the bridge. I, we, we sang the bridge. in it. The bridge yes. in the laundry room. And, but I want to go back to, to Reno. I mean, this is amazing. You were sick. He was injured. And yet this, you know, you're both feeling not great. And yet this energetic, upbeat, Oh, celebration yeah. song comes out of that. I mean, it's just it's well, interesting. I will tell you what set me off because I showed up to that writing session with a bunch of lyrics that I had, had cobbled together. But what set me off was that Kenny had said, you know what I hear as the driving force was, and he played it on the guitar over the phone to me. So the, and and it, I don't remember the song it goes to, but it was Lum De Lum De Lai. And that, that was, that was, that never changed. That was so infectious and it was such a solid foundation on which to build the track that we never had to look back. That was, everything flowed from that figure. And, uh, and so my lyrics were, had to come that quickly and had to had to trip off the tongue and had to be that much fun to sing. Well, I'm not sure if you know this, but Footloose isn't the only Oscar-nominated song that was written in a hotel room. Do you know what the other one famously is? No. No. White Christmas. Irving Berlin I, wrote it in a Southern California hotel room. I had no idea. Yeah, in the middle of summer of all times. Oh my God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't yeah. that amazing? No, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You're in good company. We are. We are. <laughs> I know Stephen Sondheim wrote Sending the Clowns in a Hotel Room in Boston. Makes sense. Yeah. The second nominated song teamed Dean Pitchford with Tom Snow called Let's Hear It for the Boy. This song plays during the montage when Kevin Bacon's Wren teaches Christopher Penn's Willard how to dance. Like most montages, Willard gets better and better with each passing scene. And as the song changes key, Willard is seen dancing perfectly in time with the music. Though Let's Hear It For The Boy is essentially a love song, it also fits the montage, cheering on the clumsy Willard as he becomes a better dancer.
The song is performed by Denise Williams, who had her second number one song, knocking Lionel Richie's Hello out of the top spot. Her first was Too Much, Too Little, Too Late in 1978, which was a duet with Johnny Mathis. Williams's four-octave range is on full display in Let's Hear It For The Boy, a talent that very few female artists had except for, at the time, Julie Andrews. Pitchford's co-writer Tom Snow was trying to make it as a solo artist after spending time as part of the band Country in the 1970s. When that didn't work out, he started writing songs for others, earning a big hit in 1980 with He's So Shy for the Pointer Sisters. Let's Hear It For The Boy is, is a great song, Dean. One of my favorites from the movie, actually. Um, Thank you. I, I really hope that the process of writing it wasn't as strange as what you went through for Footloose. Well, here's the interesting thing about fame, uh, Fo- Footloose and Let's Hear It For The Boy. Footloose was the first song that we that I began to work on for the movie. Okay. And then Kenny goes off to Asia. The movie goes into production. I am in Los Angeles in a, lining up the co-writers and the artists who will fill in the rest of the slots. 
Tom Snow and I had written a song called Somebody's Eyes. And we were able to whip off a demo of Somebody's Eyes, which was in strict tempo because it was done with machine drums. And Herbert Ross loved Somebody's Eyes. And he loved it so much that he took it with him to Utah and they used it as the basis for a number of the dance sequences in, in the movie. Um, and something happened, but it was not, it was a little bit more minorish in feel. And it wasn't as bubbly and ebullient as what Herbert eventually decided we needed. And after using it for weeks and weeks and weeks of shooting, and then the footage came back to LA and the editor is in his cutting room and he is playing it over and over and over and over again. Herbert Ross eventually went, got a little tired of it. And he said, this is beginning to wear my last nerve. He said, especially for the moment where Kevin's character teaches Chris Penn's character to dance. He said, we need something that is so over the top, joyous and ebullient that uh, uh, can you write us a new song? By this time, all the other material had been written and we were very close to having to dub the movie. So we were down to a crunch. So uh, because we were going to be replacing a Tom Snow song, I called Tom and I said, you, you want to write a second song for the movie? Let's write this second song. So I went over to his house that evening at about eight o'clock at night. And I already had this idea, you know, that there was a, come on, let's hear it for the, the, the guy that I love. I want, let's hear it for my baby. Let's hear it for the boy. Uh, and I knew that it was going to be a girl song because I was thinking of it from the point of view of his girlfriend, Rusty, who was saying, maybe he's no Romeo, but he's my love in one man show. We needed a girl because I didn't have a guy. There was no, nothing a guy could say in that moment. We needed a girl to sing in that moment. So Tom and I worked from about eight o'clock at night and we finished the demo at three or three thirty in the morning. And the next morning I took it to the studio and I played it for everybody in our office, the producers, and they all went berserk. They, especially because the, the, the baseline that Tom Snow came up with, boom, 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 boom. He would later be told by Quincy Jones, Quincy Jones thought it was one of the best baselines in pop music history. I don't and deny that. Again, it's one of those things where when you have that as the baseline, you can't, you can't, you can't desert it. You can't let it go. You have to serve it. And so we wrote, let's hear for the boy very quickly. And we had a contract with Columbia Records that required us to use X number of Columbia artists. Uh, some of the artists we got from other labels, but we needed a certain number of Columbia artists. And Denise Williams was on Columbia Records. And I loved Denise Williams. And I loved her, her girlish voice. And I thought she'd sound great singing Let's Hear For The Boy. So we very quickly got in touch with Denise Williams and her producer, George Duke. They rushed over to my cabana. I was living in a little bungalow in West Hollywood. Tom was there sat at the piano and played the song. We gave them both lead she uh, uh, lyric sheets and they listened and immediately agreed to record it. Um, I had no idea how quickly they meant to record it because I then had to go away for like two days and I came back and discovered that they had rushed into the studio and George had laid down a track. He had copied Tom Snow's track faithfully because Tom did the best tracks and every time we had a hit it was because somebody copped tom's demo but 
Denise had been had sung it uh, in a kind of a chirpy little girly way because she took the boy of the title very seriously. And I said, I came back, I heard it, and I said, that's a little light for our purposes. And it's not enough that it work as a, a song. It's got to work for the movie. It's got to serve a dramatic purpose. And so I very quickly asked if we could do, a, I, I gingerly asked if we could please get her back into the studio and do a re-recording of it. And it was arranged very, very quickly. And I think the recording started at 11 p.m. at night. And I was there, to, uh, George Duke was there, Tom Snow was there, Denise was there, and her two backup singers. And her two backup singers were a married couple named George Merrill and Shannon Rubicamp. And George Merrill and Shannon Rubicamp, not only did they sing wonderful backups on Let's Hear It For The Boy, but they would then go on to become a duo with a signed, with a record label, record deal themselves called Boy Meets Girl. They had a hit with a song called Waiting For A Star To Fall. But their true success came when they wrote for Whitney Houston, How Will I Know? And I Want To Dance With Somebody Who Loves Me. And those were the background singers that put their oohs and ahs on Let's Hear It For The Boy with Denise Williams. So you've had, you've had some great track records with people who are your background singers. You had Luther Vandross for fame, and he would go on to be a superstar after that. And then you had these two who just shot the stardom after, after Let's Hear It For The Boy. Well, you know, the thing was that I realized that I, I was moving at a level in the record business where I was working with people who knew the best people. And all I had to do was sit back and trust my collaborators. And they, they knew exactly who to pick up the phone and call. And I let them because I didn't know anything. Well, you, you luck can yeah. play a lot into a lot of things. And that's just amazing. Yeah. Um, so what I, one thing I liked about oh, the wait, song. Let me, let me hear one other thing. When we sure. got to that recording session with Denise, she pulled out of her purse the original lyric sheet that I had given her in my bungalow when she'd come over. And she showed me that after hearing Tom's demo of the song the first time, she had written on the corner of the page, one million, because she predicted that the song would sell a million copies. Well, she, was, she, she missed it by about five million. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. Uh, just my, my question is about Denise Williams, because one thing I like about the song is, I mean, yes, you had to you had to use her because she was with Columbia. But what what I like about her is she had this great octave range. Oh, yeah. And, and it goes into display in this song. Yeah. Um, did you have to make any adjustments to it to kind of fit her vocal range? No, no. As a matter of fact, she she recorded it in the key that Tom sang the demo in because he was really always very good about said he would set his demos in keys that would immediately attract female singers you know if they were hearing it in a key that that felt out of their range they might not want to record it he would place it exactly in their sweet spot um but no what was great too about that session where we were able to get denise back again was i was able to get her to growl and uh, kind of rip into her chords but at the same time we then turned her loose at the end to do the all those kind of like bubbly octave jumps that she did. And so it was the best of both worlds. She sang it as a woman, and then she just added this fairy dust that she sprinkled over the top of it. It was an amazing performance. And I have to say, we got it in like three takes, three or four takes. 
she was that much a pro. Two songs nominated for an Oscar, and both of them number one Billboard hits. The the movie is a big, big, big success for the whole summer. It, I I know that you were you were told by Paramount that you they didn't expect much. And so, you know, when this all of a sudden, all of these songs, not just these two, but all yeah. of the songs, the whole soundtrack, the movie just starts to really do well, given that this was your baby, you were you were the genesis of it. I mean, how did it make you feel that it was such a big hit? You know, I felt like I might have a place in the business. Uh, it was because uh, you have to understand, though, this was uh, between fame and Footloose. There were three years during which I was writing. Uh, I was writing pop music for other people like Melissa Manchester. You should hear how she talks about you. And Kenny Loggins and Steve Perry and I did Don't Fight It in that period and both got no Grammy nominations. Um, and I'm rewriting and rewriting and rewriting Footloose. But I really didn't, I, I kept on feeling like an outsider. I really felt like I was maybe being invited to the party, but through the service entrance. Hmm. And uh, with the arrival of Footloose, I felt my shoulders dropped. I felt maybe I know what I'm doing. And things got a little bit easier after that. Pitchford did reunite with his famed composer Michael Gore for one song in Footloose. It's called Never, and it's the song that Kevin Bacon dances to in anger at an empty warehouse. Sung by an Australian band called Moving Pictures, the song was pivotal for the scene but didn't impress the public much when the soundtrack came out. It wasn't released as one of the singles from the movie, and according to the members of Moving Pictures, they were never paid royalties once the soundtrack went platinum. There are at least three other original songs from Footloose that could have been nominated for the Oscar. I'm Free was the song performed as the kids get ready for their senior prom. Holding Out for a Hero is the song played when Ren is playing chicken on a tractor with the town bully. And Almost Paradise is the film's love song, played during the senior prom when, ironically, no one's dancing. But if any of those songs had been nominated, we wouldn't have got our historic list of all number one songs in 1984. And the next nominated song we'll hear is the first movie song for Phil Collins, called Against All Odds. It's the love song from the romantic drama starring Jeff Bridges as a football player, who is hired to find his friend's missing girlfriend, played by Rachel Ward. The two, of course, fall in love, and the song encapsulates the angst that Bridges feels after he realizes they can't be together. The last shot of the film is Rachel Ward staring at Bridges on the other side of a crowd, looking sad yet thankful that they had their brief fling. Phil Collins's aching vocal, complete with his signature drum beats, makes the song more haunting. Let you leave without a trace When I stand here taking every breath with you Ooh. You're the only one who really knew me at all How can you just walk away from me When all I can do is watch you leave Cause we've shared Love around the pain 
unlike most songs, Against All Odds only plays at the end of the movie, instead of during the opening credits or somewhere during the film. Giving the meaning of the lyrics, it makes sense to play it at the end of the movie, and that long stare by Rachel Ward while the song plays sells it even more. This is director Taylor Hackford's first movie since directing An Officer and a Gentleman. In that movie, the Oscar-winning song Up Where We Belong didn't play until the end of the movie, and it seemed to do quite well. Hackford certainly saw the worth of putting a hit song in Against All Odds, and securing Phil Collins to write it and sing it was worth every penny. The song was released a couple of weeks before the film came out, and helped to bring more money into Columbia Pictures' coffers. Phil Collins was known before 1984 as the drummer and lead singer for the British band Genesis. He began to pursue a solo career in 1980 and got himself a big hit with In the Air Tonight from his album Face Value. He released a couple more albums in the early 1980s with moderate success, but Against All Odds, which was subtitled Take a Look at Me Now, was the song that really made him an international star. It was, as we've said before, a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for three weeks in April and May 1984, just as Footloose was on its way down the charts, and just before Let's Hear It For The Boy took the top spot. Against All Odds only got as high as number two in Collins' native England, though. Because the song was released only on the Against All Odds soundtrack, it helped that album sell well, peaking at number 12 on the Billboard album charts. Bill Collins didn't have to dig very deep to find the inspiration for the title song to Against All Odds. He had been going through a messy divorce since the late 1970s, and the emotions were very evident in every track of his Face Value album. Apparently still reeling from the aftermath of the divorce, the lyrics in Against All Odds feel like Collins is singing directly to his ex-wife. Take a look at me now. There's just an empty space. There's nothing left here to remind me, just a memory of your face. All of his emotions seem to be purged with the creation of Against All Odds, since the next thing Phil Collins released was the album No Jacket Required, which featured extremely upbeat songs like Susudio and Take Me Home. Stevie Wonder had been one of the biggest singer-songwriters of the 1970s, having won the Grammy for Album of the Year a record three times and selling millions of records before he was 30 years old. In the 1980s, Stevie Wonder was not as popular as he was in the 1970s, but he still had a prolific album output that shifted from the funk sound to a more pop-oriented flavor. When comedian Gene Wilder was looking for someone to supply some songs to his romantic comedy called The Woman in Red, about a married man who falls for a model, well, I guess Stevie Wonder was the only natural choice. But was he the right choice? Dionne Warwick, who had been hired to be the song coordinator for the movie, was tasked with finding the right songwriter to highlight the emotions of Wilder's character as he chases Kelly LeBrock on a quest to have one night with her. The result was a soundtrack full of Stevie Wonder songs that was much more successful than the movie, selling millions of copies and spurning an Oscar-nominated song that, yes, spent some time at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. The song is called I Just Called to Say I Love You, and it gave Stevie Wonder his eighth number one song on the Billboard Hot 100. It's actually quite amazing that this song, or any of the others on the soundtrack for The Woman in Red, turned out to be so successful. 
All of the seven songs that Stevie Wonder wrote for the movie are heavily edited in the film version and heard for a maximum of two minutes each. Pretty much only the chorus of each song plays in the movie, giving us little time to appreciate Wonder's songwriting and his vocal performances. Even if Stevie Wonder knew all of his songs would be chopped up in the film, it seems like a waste of the talent of one of the most popular singer-songwriters of that era. The chorus of I Just Called to Say I Love You doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the meaning of the song. Including the 90 seconds played in the end credits, the song is heard for only two and a half minutes, and again, only the chorus. The first time it's played is during a scene in the San Diego airport, where Gene Wilder's Ted is stuck after his plane to Los Angeles has been diverted. He was flying from San Francisco to L.A. to be with LeBrock's Charlotte, and to throw his wife off the scent, he calls her from San Diego, just to say I love you. Stevie Wonder wants us to believe that Teddy really loves his wife, even if he's on a trip to have an affair. Even though the chorus is the only thing in the movie, we're going to hear the full song, which says that there's no special holiday or occasion needed to call someone to say I love you. The song runs through the calendar, from the chocolate-covered candy hearts of Valentine's Day to the autumn breeze that prompts birds to fly to southern skies. Stevie Wonder performs everything in the song, from the lead vocal to backing vocal and all the synthesizer and drum instruments. No new Not even time for birds to fly to southern 
insult to injury, there's a totally unnecessary scene involving Charles Grodin pretending to be a blind man who crashes and fumbles through a restaurant, destroying glasses and spilling food. Even if Stevie Wonder, who had been blind since birth, hadn't been involved with the movie, the scene would be totally offensive. I hope no one told Stevie Wonder about the scene. There's nothing really offensive about Ghostbusters, the film that features the fifth nominated song. With $282 million in ticket sales after it opened in June 1984, Ghostbusters held the record as the highest grossing comedy of all time. A record it would hold for just a few months until Beverly Hills Cop took it over in summer 1985. The story of three scientists who fight off evil supernatural beings in New York City made Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd even bigger stars than they were, and officially proved that Saturday Night Live cast members could indeed be movie stars. Of course, Eddie Murphy was submitting that theory with Beverly Hills Cop later that year. The underscore for Ghostbusters was written by classically trained composer Elmer Bernstein, who had won an Oscar for the underscore for Thoroughly Modern Millie in 1967 and had just scored an Oscar nomination in 1983 for adapting various classical pieces for the comedy Trading Places, starring Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. Bernstein seemed to have no qualms about writing music for comedies, but when director Ivan Reitman suggested that Ghostbusters have a theme song for the title characters, Bernstein thought it was a bad idea. Reitman had entertained this idea during editing, when he used the Huey Lewis and the News song, I Want a New Drug, during a montage and for other scenes in the movie. Huey Lewis was one of the dozens of songwriters asked to submit an original theme song, but he was already committed to working on another upcoming comedy to be released in 1985, and that one's called Back to the Future. 
In the pile of cassette tapes Wrightman listened to, he found the song that fit the vibe of the movie and was instantly catchy. It shows up three times in the movie. Once when the movie's title appears on screen, second during a montage of the Ghostbusters becoming popular in New York City, and third during the end credits. Call. <laughs> Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! 
The song was written by Ray Parker Jr., who was born in Detroit and raised by Motown Music. By the age of 15, he was waist-deep in the 1960s Motown sound, playing guitar with the likes of Marvin Gaye and learning a lot about the music business. At age 16, Parker was the personal guitarist for Stevie Wonder and was going on tour with him and the Rolling Stones. When he moved to Los Angeles in his late teens, Parker's first real gig was writing songs and playing guitar for Barry White. In the 1970s, Parker wrote some songs that made it into the Billboard Hot 100 Top 10 with his band Radio. He had also written some songs for Shaka Khan and a few others in the early 1970s. When he ventured out into a solo career in 1981, his first hit was The Other Woman, which was kept out of the number one spot of the Hot 100 by Ebony and Ivory. Parker said of the directive of putting the film's title in the song, It was the biggest challenge, especially since there's nothing really to rhyme with Ghostbusters. It sounds easy now because you've heard the song, Parker said in a 1991 interview. The hard part was getting the title in the song. Ray Parker Jr. also had one day to fully record the song, and in the 2022 documentary Who You Gonna Call, Parker relived the hectic final moments of writing and recording the song in his studio. And I said, this is the secret. I can never say the words Ghostbusters in the music. So it's a call and answer response song. I still don't have any words on, right? But I got the concept, who you gonna call Ghostbusters? Got that. But now the messenger's coming at nine o'clock and it's like 8.30. Well, this is the exact spot and location I was sitting at when I wrote Ghostbusters. I had the mailman, the, the messenger guy, sitting outside, ready to come in. I would not let him come in. I locked the door, because if I didn't have any words, they weren't gonna pay me my money. So I actually wrote the song sitting here with no headphones on and sang the master vocal that we kept. And it's on the record now through those speakers. If it's something strange in your neighborhood, who you gonna call? And I just sang it just like this sitting on the floor. Put it on a cassette, hand it to the messenger, and then I go home and go to sleep because I hadn't slept in two and a half days. And then I get a phone call from the director, Ivan Reitman, in the middle of the night. And he says, man, I really like this song. Possibly one of the original songs that Ivan Reitman had to reject as the main song of the film was called Cleaning Up the Town, written by brothers Brian and Kevin O'Neill. It's a fun little jazzy swing song about the Ghostbusters and followed Reitman's directive that the title of the movie appear in the song. I guess Reitman liked the song enough for it to appear in the movie, which it does when the Ghostbusters get ready to take down their first ghost. It only plays for about a minute in the film, not really long enough to make much of an impression, which it didn't on the public, only getting up to number 68 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart.
By the summer of 1984, when Ghostbusters the movie and the song were both all the rage around the world, MTV was officially one of the most watched cable channels in the United States. Music videos helped increase record sales, and those that came from the movies helped record sales and movie ticket sales. All five of the nominated songs from 1984 had official music videos playing often on MTV, but the one that decided against using mostly film footage was Ghostbusters. Ivan Reitman directed the video, which shows a woman who lives in an apartment decorated by neon furniture and is spooked by various things happening around her, including Ray Parker Jr. But the highlight of the video is seeing the 12 celebrities yelling out the title of the song. Chevy Chase appears twice, and fellow comedians John Candy and Danny DeVito show up as well. Even the previous year's Oscar-winning songwriter Irene Cara makes an appearance. All of the celebrities reportedly did this for free out of love for Reitman. There's also a shot of Ray Parker Jr. dancing in Times Square with the four Ghostbusters, including a breakdancing Bill Murray. The video was one of the most played in 1984 and showed how music videos for movies could be done. But the Ghostbusters music video couldn't match anything that Prince did for the songs released from the movie Purple Rain. One of the most iconic music videos of the time was When Doves Cry, which was the most popular song from this semi-autobiographical film about a rock band that struggles to become famous in Minneapolis. The music video started with Prince in a bathtub, then continued with clips from the movie, and then a performance of his band The Revolution. It was one of the most popular music videos of MTV's young history. The soundtrack instantly became a hit as well, cemented Prince's status as a superstar, and earned zero Oscar nominations in the original song category. How did the biggest movie soundtrack of the year, of the decade that is, fail to earn a Best Song nomination, or two, or three? Remember, this is a question we asked about Saturday Night Fever, and pretty much everything about the Beatles. When it comes to Purple Rain, it's not the fault of the Academy. The music branch eliminated that confusing rule from 1981 and 1982 that said, quote, no submission shall be eligible in more than one category, end quote. It kept songs from Victor Victoria out of the original song category in 1982, but there are other reasons why the songs from Purple Rain, two of which spent time at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, are not on the list of original song nominees. It's very likely that the controversy regarding the risque nature of many of the songs in Purple Rain kept older Oscar voters from marketing them on their nomination ballots. I mean, most of the songs, including When Doves Cries, kind of about sex. Or there were so many great songs to nominate that the music branch voters couldn't agree on which one or two or maybe three songs from Purple Rain should be listed at the top of their ballots. Remember that the nominees are decided through a preferential ballot, meaning voters had to make sure the songs they really wanted to nominate were at least in the top three slots on their ballot, or they might not get counted. That means voters probably assumed at least one Purple Rain song would be nominated, so they didn't vote for any of them, and boosted the chance of other songs to get in by putting a Purple Rain song lower on their ballots. Either way, this has to count as one of the biggest slights in the history of the Best Original Song category, right up there with snubbing the early Bond songs, anything by the Beatles, and of course, as I said earlier, all the songs from Saturday Night Fever. 
The music branch made up for it, though, by nominating Purple Rain in the original song score category alongside the music from The Muppets Take Manhattan and Chris Christopherson's songs from the country music movie Songwriter. Which song or songs should have been nominated from Purple Rain? Certainly the title song, in which Prince's character, The Kid, begs the forgiveness of those he has hurt throughout the film, was the prime candidate for an original song nomination. Surprisingly, Purple Rain, the song, never got to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. It was kept out of that spot by Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go in September 1984. When Doves Cry was the first single released from the album, and it spent five weeks at number one, the longest of any song in 1984. The song plays in the movie during a montage during one of the kids' low points. Just after he learns that his band is in danger of being fired, his relationship with his girlfriend is on the rocks, and his family life is on the verge of tragedy. Never satisfied 
As I mentioned earlier, Beverly Hills Cop cemented Eddie Murphy as a movie star just six months after he left Saturday Night Live. The movie was one of the first times a black man played the lead role in a comedy movie, and the first time a movie with a black leading star would reign at the top of the box office. One of the big reasons why the movie was a success was the soundtrack album, which was released at the same time as the movie. It featured not only the instrumental theme for the movie by Harold Faltermeyer, but also an original song written by Faltermeyer and newly minted Oscar winner Keith Forsey. The song is The Heat Is On, and it's the song that opens the movie over shots of Detroit. So that's yet another number one song that missed out on an Oscar nomination in 1984. Again, the preferential nomination ballot had to hurt this song because it might not have been a top choice among all the great songs in 1984. When Doves Cry was one of the Golden Globe nominees for original song, competing with four of the five Oscar nominees. Let's Hear It For The Boy was left out, and a sixth nominee was included. That song was No More Lonely Nights from Paul McCartney's lone foray into acting post-Beatles called Give My Regards to Broad Street. The song was the only true original composition for the movie, which featured some Beatles songs in this fictional story where Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr play themselves. I can wait another day Until I call you Everything a flutter, but another lonely night might take forever. We've only got each other to blame. It's all the same to me, love, cause I know.
The first victory for 1984 songs went to I Just Called to Say I Love You at the Golden Globes. But the victory train for that song stalled at the Grammy Awards one month later when Stevie Wonder lost Song of the Year to Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It. Against All Odds was also a nominee for the Song of the Year Grammy and won Phil Collins the Best Male Pop Performance Grammy. That category was another chance to see which song had the better odds for the Oscar, with Collins up against Kenny Loggins for Footloose and Stevie Wonder as well. Chalk up one win for Ghostbusters as well, as it won the original song award from the British Academy of Film and Television 20 days before the Academy Awards. The day after accepting the award, Parker was supposed to appear in NBC's London studio to do an interview for the Today Show. On his way to the studio, he encountered a large protest demonstration that blocked traffic. He walked several blocks to the studio, with many of his fans recognizing him and following him. And Dean is back here to talk about his memories of being an Oscar nominee. So compared to fame, how was the experience of being a nominee for Footloose? And let's hear Footboy. Um, it, it was, to be honest, it was uh, as exciting as it was the first time around to get those nominations. I also know from uh, years of observation that it's, often not the best thing to have two songs from the same picture nominated because they can split the vote. You know, when Mary Poppins came out, the folks at Disney sat down and they went, there's so many things in this movie that could be nominated. Let's only push one. And they pushed Chim Chim Cherie and it won. So um, as happy as I was for Kenny and for Tom Snow, I also realized that both of those songs had their fans and so everything in the field was very popular had been up and down the billboard charts and everybody in the audience knew every one of those songs backwards and forwards and so it was it was not like uh, there were a couple of also rans everything it was a tight race so um i was nervous and i thought that that we would probably come up short because Stevie Wonder is a classic, you know, Phil Collins, oh my God, and 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 Ray Parker Jr. with Ghostbusters, which was an enormous hit. So uh, it was it was much more of a horse race than it had been three years before. Yeah, it was there were a lot of award shows that were before the Oscars and and a lot of those songs were getting awards. Uh, I was surprised that Footloose and Let's Hear Boy were getting nothing going into the Oscars. And so I don't know if you had been were aware of that going in, like, oh, Stevie Wonder was winning stuff and Ray Parker Jr. won the BAFTA. And so, you know, they have the momentum. Or did you did you notice or do you even care? No, I, I noticed. I noticed because I'm, you know, biting my nails as we're getting close. But I also realized something that I knew from history that um if you open it very early in the year, by the time the year is out and more and more and more movies have piled up and more and more product has come out, and then the next year comes around and the nominations start, uh, people might have a foggy memory about, right. you know. And we opened in February of 1984. And so everything else that was nominated that year followed us. And some of those songs were still on the charts 
when November and December and nomination season rolled around. So I was well aware of the calendar working against us, but I was also enormously proud of the work that we had done and very happy that I would be sitting at the Oscars with Tom and Kenny Loggins. And we had a reason to return. It was a very, very nice uh, evening for all of us. The list of five song nominees features four very upbeat tunes and one that is about the end of a love affair. Compare this to the list of the five Best Picture nominees that year, Amadeus, The Killing Fields, A Passage to India, Places in the Heart, and A Soldier Story, and at least the song nominees have the ability to put a smile on your face. With all five songs hitting number one, though, the Billboard Hot 100 chart performance was not a good barometer of judging which song was the front runner. At the Academy Awards ceremony on March 25, 1985, with the exception of Let's Hear It For The Boy, the nominated songs were all written by the men who sang them in the film, and it was almost certain that Kenny Loggins, Stevie Wonder, Bill Collins, and Ray Parker Jr. were coming to the ceremony. Ray Parker Jr. was the only one who had to worry about performing live. There was a lot of controversy over Phil Collins's non-involvement in performing Against All Odds. The show's producers, which included actor Gregory Peck, Writer Larry Gelbart and director Robert Wise reportedly didn't bother to ask Phil Collins to perform, out of concern that he wasn't popular enough. Instead, they asked Anne Ranking, who was known in theater circles as a great dancer and sometime girlfriend of director Bob Fosse, but had never put a song on the pop charts. And about a minute into her performance, it became more clear why they asked Ranking to perform. She started dancing with Gary Christ on stage, making it obvious that her singing was lip-synced. The point was to make the song into a dance routine instead of having a lone person stand on an empty stage. Everyone knew who Stevie Wonder was in 1984, but he didn't sing his song either. Gregory Peck told the press, quote, The recording companies had come to think it was our obligation to help sell their albums. We said we have no such obligation. With five recording artists, you no longer have a Motion Picture Academy show. End quote. So, no Stevie Wonder, Phil Collins, or Kenny Loggins. Denise Williams was asked to sing Let's Hear It for the Boy, since I guess she wasn't a big-name singer. Debbie Allen, who was known more as a dancer and not a singer, lip-synced Footloose with a couple dozen dancers in a five-minute performance. Diana Ross made her third Oscar appearance to sing I Just Called to Say I Love You. She tried to get the audience involved at the performance at the end by asking them to clap along, and they pretty much did. I mentioned that Chris Christopherson was a nominee in the original song score category, and he got to perform a special medley of country songs with Lynette McKee and other nominee for original song Willie Nelson, who got to sing his nominated song on the road again. Though the producers wanted to have a more streamlined show devoid of famous singers, I guess Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson weren't famous singers. Hmm. Prince didn't get to perform any of the songs from Purple Rain to showcase his nomination in the original song score category, and the Muppets didn't get to sing anything from their movie either. There was a lot of hypocrisy going on regarding who would get to sing at the Academy Awards that night. Bill Collins would later throw a lot of shade to Anne Ranking and her performance of Against All Odds. Before singing it in concerts, he would say, quote, Anne Ranking couldn't be here to sing tonight, so I guess I'll sing my song, end quote. 
Kenny didn't get to sing Footloose, which I thought was an odd choice. Do, do you know if that was something he decided to do or the producers no. just didn't pick him? No. In those days, if you go back and look at the performers that were always brought in on Oscar nights, the the division between pop music and film was a, a wide chasm. Uh, and people in Hollywood didn't think much of the people who made music. Not until, you know, that not until MTV and everybody wanted in on that game. But if you go back and you look at the, the people who recorded songs in motion pictures, if they were not, if they didn't have uh, their feet in film industry or if they were not enormous, enormous, uh, uh, um, well, TV stars or figures in uh, the Hollywood world, uh, they wouldn't get asked. And so the the ratings drove the choice of award uh, uh, performers. After Phil Collins endured Anne Reinking's singing, he had to endure the agony of wondering if he would win the Oscar. Gregory Hines, who was one of the stars of the upcoming movie White Nights, came out to present the award. And for the first time in Oscar history, all of the nominated songwriters were shown in the audience after Hines read their names. And perhaps that's to be expected when all six of the songwriters wrote extremely popular songs, and many of them were as famous as the nominated actors. While Hines opened the envelope, we were able to see all six of them on screen react when he simply said, Stevie Wonder. Naturally, Stevie Wonder was beyond surprised, and Ray Parker Jr., sitting right behind him, had to look happy for the new Oscar winner and his former boss. After a 30-second ovation from the audience, Stevie Wonder gave a speech that was funny and ultimately memorable. I cannot, I cannot believe it. I really cannot believe it. I, um, I must share this with you. It'll take just a second, I think. But um, all through Europe, I had dreams, um, and I would always wake up when I was at an awards show, and the uh, nominees were coming up, and they say, this song and this song, and the winner is, I would wake up. But I never thought that this would happen. <laughs> I never thought this would happen. I would like to accept this award, award in the name of Nelson Mandela. I'd like to thank, first of all, Ms. Dionne Warwick for allowing me this opportunity. I'd like to, I'd like to thank Gene Wilder for thinking that I might be able to do some songs for your film. Thank Ryan Pictures, and thank Motown Records, and my family and my crew, from my heart. I love you. So I watched the video of the announcement where Stevie Wonder wins the Oscar, and it took me a while to realize that Phil Collins was actually in the row right in front of you yes. um, the whole time. Uh, and you had Kenny on your your right and Tom on your left. So did did the four of you kind of commiserate afterward about losing the Oscar? Um, no, we actually we were we were actually very. Um, it was like a little. It was like an old boys club. We were all we all we you know we all kind of took the attitude. Well, next year. Uh, um, but you know I, I all the the other three, Tom. Kenny, Phil Collins, they had long, long histories in the music business. They'd been at it for 30, 40 years. And I, I was, you know, I was the new boy, the new kid on the block. So I felt overwhelmed 
by to be in their company. So you were just well, and you had already won. So you kind of were like, okay, if I don't win, at least I have one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, um, I, I, I could not, I could not say that I was bummed. I could not say I was bummed. It was kind of like a, well, snap your fingers and move along. Yeah, there's you, uh, you got more work to do. Yep, exactly. Mentioning Nelson Mandela, the jailed South African who fought to end apartheid was not really a major incident in the United States. But in South Africa, where the white minority ruled, all of Stevie Wonder's records were banned from radio play the very next day. That didn't bother Stevie Wonder at all, who said, if my being banned means more people will be free, ban me mega times. Mandela had been in jail for 22 years at that point and would be released from prison in 1990. I'm sure Stevie Wonder wishes that that was the only controversy stemming from I Just Called to Stay I Love You. Seven months after winning the Oscar, two of his former colleagues sued him for copyright infringement. Lloyd Chiati and Lee Garrett alleged that the song I Just Called to Say I Love You sounded very much like the song they wrote, called Hello It's Me, I Just Called to Say. The lawsuit claimed that Chiati and Garrett played their song for Stevie Wonder in September 1976, and that he would use the melody and part of the lyrics for his Oscar-winning song. But Stevie Wonder said he came up with the chorus for the song in July 1976 after visiting his mother. Garrett dropped the lawsuit a few months later and testified on behalf of Stevie Wonder. In 1990, a jury ruled in favor of Stevie Wonder, and an appeal two years later was denied. The lawsuit brought up the issue of whether I Just Called to Say I Love You should have been eligible for an Academy Award nomination. If he wrote the chorus in 1976, then it wasn't written specifically for the film. Wonder said in the trial that when he was hired to work on The Woman in Red, he made significant changes to the song, so much so that in 1984, that version was very different from what he wrote in 1976. No one brought up a challenge to the Academy during or after the trial asking for Stevie Wonder's Oscar to be revoked for not filling the eligibility criteria, and the song remains an Oscar winner. Ray Parker Jr. also found himself in the middle of a lawsuit, this time by Huey Lewis. As I mentioned earlier, Huey Lewis in the News' song, I Want a New Drug, was a placeholder song during the post-production process of Ghostbusters and Lewis claimed that Parker's song is a carbon copy. Here's just a little bit of I Want a New Drug, followed by a snippet of Ghostbusters for you to hear and compare.
afraid of no ghosts. Unlike Stevie Wonder, Ray Parker Jr. got the case settled for an undisclosed amount in less than a year. But the biggest stipulation of the settlement was that neither Ray Parker Jr. or Huey Lewis would talk publicly about the lawsuit, which Lewis violated in 2001. That sparked a lawsuit by Parker, who won that one for another undisclosed sum, but was probably as much or more than the royalties he made on the song. Ivan Reitman was apparently part of the original lawsuit and in a 2014 interview said, quote, We decided to settle even though I think there's a lot of songs that are similar to other songs, have the same beat. But it, meaning Ghostbusters, was a totally original song, original lyrics, original everything, end quote. Since Ray Parker Jr. settled the lawsuit, it would seem like an admission of guilt, but no one challenged his song's Oscar eligibility either. Neither Stevie Wonder nor Ray Parker Jr. would find themselves writing any more songs that would put them in the conversation for more Academy Award nominations. Of course, Stevie Wonder continued to churn out lots of hits, including the smash Part-Time Lover in 1985. Though the 1980s weren't as popular for Stevie Wonder as the 1970s were, he still remained one of the top performers of the decade. Ray Parker Jr. would simultaneously loathe and love the aftermath of Ghostbusters. He had a hard time finding a single that would match or beat that song's success, but he would write some hits for Diana Ross and the boy band New Edition. So before we go, Dean, I want to bring up the Broadway version of Footloose that came out in fall 1998 and the 2011 movie remake. Did oh, it? Yeah. What, did you ever envision that those two versions would happen? Well, no. I mean, to be honest, I had not thought about taking the show to the stage. Uh, what really drove me, one of my best friends in my life is Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Wicked and Godspell and Pippin uh, and Prince of Egypt and Enchanted. But Stephen uh, has been a dear friend for 50 years. And his wife was always on me to train to 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 transform Footloose the movie into a stage property, she said, because you have no idea what kind of a hunger there is out there for school groups and college groups and summer stock and all these. It's a big big world out there, and you're not exploring it. And so I, I reluctantly because I was busy with a lot of other things, but then uh, uh, there was a kind of an opening in my schedule. And I thought maybe I'll take a look at whether this can be done. And the first thing that I had to do was I had to go to Paramount and get Paramount to sign off on the idea because they held the underlying rights. And because of the terms of the contract that they had, they had, they had the option to exploit it themselves for a period of five years after the movie's release. And they did nothing about that. So now it's 12 years later and I'm coming to them and I'm saying, I'm thinking about doing this as a Broadway show. And nobody was doing that at the time. Nobody was taking motion picture properties and musicalizing them and moving them east. And they had they had so little idea of what it is that I was talking about that they thanked them very much. They gave me all the rights. That is not happening. Often. Nobody ever, ever did that again to any other property because 
footloose. Mm -hmm. right. uh, but it was we and but at the same time, yes, they gave me all the rights. At the same at, at the very same time, nobody along the way thought it it was a very good idea. Fortunately, I eventually acquired a group of investors and producers who really stood behind me. Um, but the, the the scuttlebutt in New York was very negative about the, the musical. It was because it was like um, those people from Hollywood and those people from pop music are daring to come and uh, presume that they know what to do uh, in the Broadway stage. But the fact is, I had started in Broadway. I had started in New York performing off-Broadway and then on Broadway. And so I was coming home as far as I was concerned. Everybody else thought we were very, uh, very suspect. Uh, and then what happened was I, I joined with uh, uh, Tom Snow again to write more songs and Walter Bobby who was an actor when I was an actor who had then become a director and had won the Tony Award that year for the, the year that I was interviewing with him, he was nominated and then he won the Tony Award for directing the revival of Chicago, which has just completed 27 years of running on Broadway and continues to run. So I was working with a Broadway veteran with Walter and we went to work rewriting the show and and taking the songs which I had envisioned would have been the voices of the characters in the movie and then just putting them in their mouths. So Rusty sang, let's hear for the boy and Ren sang Footloose. Uh, and so it was a joyous process. And not only did the, the show open and broke all kinds of box office records and we got Tony nominations and we got... Uh, signed for a licensing deal and we did a record that got a Grammy nomination for the record. Um, but what it did was it reestablished the title. And then it started getting done all over the world. And every time it got done all over the world, like in England or Germany or Rome, uh, suddenly advertisers would say, oh, we'd like to use the song Footloose for our footwear. We'd like to use holding out for a hero for a deodorant. And we were getting commercial. Now, that was a new thing that pop radio songs were being used in commercials. And we were able to benefit from that. And then because it stayed alive, it stayed alive. Um, it, when Paramount <clears throat> in 2011 decided that they had a property in their canon that really could stand up to remaking they there was no question they they embraced it and uh, uh craig brewer who did the movie sat me down and gave me a big long speech about how important it was to him how it mattered to him and i felt that he would take really good care of it and so i gave it my blessing and he went off and did i thought a really nice job with it oh yeah well, that's so amazing. And and again, congratulations on getting the rights for the, the Broadway play and, and kind of setting that precedent. Well, yeah. And I say that not kind of to, to pat myself on the back, but to say at the time, Hollywood had no idea that there was that thing that could be done. Uh, you know, very shortly after that, there was this incredible tidal wave of titles, most of them led by Disney. Right. Disney kept taking their movies out of mothballs and saying Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, uh, 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 the Aladdin. Lion 
All of them, yeah. It, yeah. And now if it, you, you can look at Broadway. Moulin Rouge is on Broadway right now. Mean Girls was just on Broadway. Mrs. Doubtfire was just on Broadway. You know, it's, the, it's a two-way street, which I had always thought it was. But in 1984, the people on the West Coast really couldn't have cared less about what was going on on the East Coast. Dean, thank you so much for sharing your insights into Footloose. I, I just, I'm amazed at the stories you had, and it, it I think it's going to really um, affect my future listenings of these songs because, as I said, I really like them, and and when I when I hear some of, when I hear this music again, it's just going to make me remember. Kenny Loggins sang that bridge in a laundry room. In a laundry room. Yeah, I know. And isn't that vocal? I I still listen to that song and the vocal is as fresh today. His vocal is as joyous today as it was in 1984. And while we're on the subject, next year, the movie turns 40. And that song is still being being sung all over the world. Yeah, and everybody knows it. Backwards yeah. and forwards. I'm very happy about that. Well, I'm very happy to have you back in a few episodes. You're um, going to be nominated for another Oscar for another song you wrote. And I um, can't wait to hear about that one. I can't wait to talk to you again, Jeff. As we bring this historic year to a close, it's important to note how much the pop music world and the movie world were combining. Fifteen years earlier, the thought of pop songs invading movie soundtracks was laughable and established songwriters fought hard to keep pop stars out of Hollywood. But 1984 proved that change was inevitable, and it won't go away as we continue on through the 1980s. I'm looking forward to finding out how the trend continues on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. A big thanks to Andreas Bertram and Marcelo Cabral for sponsoring this episode. If you have questions or comments about the show, you can send them to me at jeffswim at aol.com. Thanks as always for singing along with me on this episode. We'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.